Hello, welcome to Supernatural Stories. I'm your host, Cal Goodbaum. In the first 10 episodes, I've shared numerous people's true stories of the supernatural from across Canada, as well as a few of my own. In episode 11, Bernard told the beginning of his life story growing up in Tucson. This is the second part of this special two-part episode. Hope you enjoy his incredible but true stories of the supernatural wherever you're listening from. Last episode, you heard Bernard tell numerous stories of the supernatural, from ghost chases like out of Scooby-Doo, to a haunted house where the $50 rent was a pretty clear giveaway that something was afoot. If you didn't listen to it yet, it's available like all the other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get a chance to listen to podcasts at. If you like the show, please leave a review of the show so that more people find out about supernatural stories and have a chance to hear these incredible true stories for themselves. Or just tell a friend the old-fashioned way. If you're an expat or soon-to-be Canadian, all the better. Last episode was my favorite one so far, but there will be many supernatural stories coming up in this and future episodes. A quick reminder, though, Bernard grew up in South Tucson, Arizona, and now in this episode, you'll hear why and how he ended up as a Canadian. When I came to Canada... I left the U.S. as a conscientious objector, and I refused induction. I wasn't a draft dodger. So I went to the local Phoenix thing, and I said, I'm not going. I want to refuse induction. They were upset because, why don't you just draft dodge? It'd be easier. The paperwork's easier. Why don't you just leave? I said, no, I'm a conscientious objector, and I have a lawyer. He said, okay, well, be prepared to have federal marshals come to arrest you in a month. At which point I left for Canada because my lawyer says, you know, you really should get out of here. I'll fight your case. And you won. So here I am in Toronto, and I'm at this place at 40 Admiral Road, Great Street there in the annex. The underground told me I had to cross the border again and get landed at the border. So I had to make the loop, as it's called, with a Buffalo school teacher who memorized everything about me in case we got separated. He went to war with my dad. He was a Second World War veteran. We made up all kinds of stuff. I get landed, and on the way back on the bus to get back to Toronto, there are three guys hitchhiking, army jackets and stuff. So the bus pulls over around Welland, picks up these guys who are like wild. Like one is Dempsey, who was a surfer in uh, Santa Cruz in California. Sam was uh, raised, his parents were missionaries, and he was raised in India and could speak Hindi, right? Blonde, blue-eyed guy, could take me to the Indian food and order in Hindi. And then there was uh, Ed, who was at Harvard, and he got drafted. So now all these guys are in the bus with me, and we're carrying on. And they say, hey, you know where we can stay in Toronto? And I said, well, I have a rooming house. I said, oh, no, we want to get a house. I said, okay, well, why don't we look for a house? So we looked for a house in the Leslie and Queen area. There was a sign. You know how some people actually put their last names on the outside? You know, you see them at cottages. Yeah. Like this house is the Allens. It said the Allens. Again... When we asked for the rent, it was dirt cheap. It's as if we walked in, it was totally furnished. It's as if somebody ran out of the house. I look over at the mantle where the fireplace was. Paperback books on witches, warlocks, and vampires. Uh-huh. They were conjuring up something in there, right? So as soon as I saw that, I said, going down to the basement. <laughs> Because sometimes it's where the, a lot of them reside. So I went downstairs and didn't, didn't feel anything. 
I'm not as sensitive as my sister, but I've always been, things have always been attracted to me. So I came upstairs and I said, okay. I said, well, we'll take it. You know, it was, what was it? hundred bucks a month or something? It was just a big house. And we all had our girlfriends because I just met this girl and Dempsey had met this girl, Christine, and Ed didn't have a girlfriend yet. So there we were. And Dempsey went to the local laundromat to take some clothes. And there were some girls in the laundromat there at Queen. And so uh, Dempsey has a way of talking to girls that makes them laugh, okay? He just, he's just that way. He's a surfer. He looks good. She said, hey, we're over here at number 11. And uh, one of the girls says, oh, number 11, that's the Allen place. And the old man, he died there. Have you seen the old man? Dempsey said, uh, no. <laughs> we decided to have a party. Some of the people that I hadn't met living in that rooming house. So a lot of these guys were, were American. You know, they had come up with their guys. They were draft dodgers and deserters. Dempsey was up in the bedroom with Christine, but and she was on top. And uh, as, as Dempsey looks up, he looks over. She doesn't see it because she's in flagrante delecto, I guess they call it, just moving around really fast. And she turns, and Dempsey's going to say, oh, oh, look, and as the old man goes right next to her, like he's almost to her cheek. She screams, right, jumps off, grabs, this is February now, grabs her clothes. It's snowing outside. She runs out naked in the snow with her clothes. Car was parked right in front, thank God. And that's it. We never see her again, right? I think Dempsey tried to call her. I said, don't call me again or something. Our house was what you call a safe house because I registered it with the underground. Anybody coming, it's on the lam. You can just knock on our door and, you, you know, it's a safe house, you have to come on in. I guess the following week, we decided that we would just have a, a going away party, <laughs> just like get out of there because there was something there and we felt kind of, kind of strange. So, uh, so we're having a party, like just a big, big party with anybody that would come, right? The house was full of people. To hear the door knock, or, and I, I go to the door and, and this little guy with a, a red beard, red hair. I said, hey, man, how you doing? I said, you want a safe house? You, you want a safe house? He says, yeah. He walks in. Thought he was on the run, right? The party was going on around him, but it seems as though nobody would sit on this rocking chair in the middle of the room. I said, hey, man, you want anything to drink? He said, nope, I'm okay. He says, sat's down. He just starts rocking and rocking and rocking. As the party wore on, you know, we sort of cut the lights and I see sort of a red ring around him, sort of faint red ring around him. I said, geez, man, I must be really stoned. <laughs> People to see this is like strange, you know. I came down again, everybody was like leaving. I said, hey, Red, you want to rock out on the couch? He says, no, I'm, I'm just going to sleep here on the rocking chair. And his eyes closed. I said, okay, man, I'll see you in the morning. Okay, ciao. Next morning, I woke up. We all came downstairs. I was making some coffee and stuff, and I was sort of looking out the back door. Outside the back door, there was a pentagram in the snow, but there were no footsteps that anyone could have done that. And on the bottom of it, read, he's gone. I didn't know whether he was meaning himself gone or the old man is gone. Really weird, right? So I told the guy, I said, look at that. They went, oh, yeah, man, <laughs> we're packing, you know, and we left. In 1968, I went with my girlfriend to New York City. 
and her parents were in Westchester, big old house, beautiful house. Dad said, you know, I, I know you're living together, but I, I think Bernard should sleep in the basement. But the basement was really cold, right? And I didn't have my girlfriend with me. So they gave me this radiating heater, those old-time ones that would radiate orange. You know, Prior to leaving for New York, my Uncle Bowman, whom I always loved as a child, he was a big man, you know, we'd hang from his biceps, his arms, we'd swing on them. Well, he had cancer for about a year and he was down to about 90 pounds. And the last memory I have of my Uncle Bowman was um, I was in the other room while he was draining his liver bile, and he looked horrible. And I always thought of him as a big giant of a man, which he was. I decided not to go to the funeral because it was an open casket in those days, and I just never liked the practice to begin with. I never wanted to see a dead corpse there. I drove past the church, and people saw my car driving, going, Chachi, going, right? So family was pretty upset with me for not paying my last respect. I didn't want to remember him like that. I really had an idea of him when he was a strong man, a charismatic man, quite a guy. You know, we all just love this guy. So I was in New York sleeping in the basement the very, very first night. I like the white noise from the radiating. All of a sudden, I just woke up and the noise, it stopped. So the orange went. And then it showed up, and there's my Uncle Bowman in the basement with me, with just his underwear. Because I remember him when I went to his house all the time. He'd always have his underwear on, you know, and he'd be reading the paper or whatever. And then he showed me his biceps like this, and he smiled and he went like this with his belly. And then the heater went back on, and I felt really good. It was a really good feeling, you know. He just came back to say goodbye that I understand. You didn't say goodbye to me, but I understand that, right? That was a really, really nice feeling that I got. Stay tuned, because in the next half of this special episode of Supernatural Stories, Bernard tells more of ghosts and psychics. If you enjoy the show and would like to support it, you can visit the Patreon page at patreon.com slash supernatural stories. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you can contribute a dollar or more towards the production of the show, which really helps with the postering campaign and online posts. And as always, you can share the show with a friend. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. My sister then marries Gary, and he's in the Air Force. She's lived in Florida, she's lived in uh, Europe, he was stationed in uh, Germany, he was stationed in... The last place was Bristol, England. When they lived on the base here in Arizona, people would come by, would knock on your door and come in from, you know, the Air Force to look at your house, because they wanted your house in order. You couldn't have a messy house when they, they came in. They were really intrusive. They would open up the garage and your bikes had to be in order and they told you how to live. So she said, I hated living on base. So they got an apartment in Bristol. They just had Daryl, my uh, nephew, who actually is just a retired lieutenant colonel from the Air Force. Gary was working all night looking for Russian missiles coming over to England, right? And she was at home all night with Daryl. 
And then she heard Daryl laughing in the room along the hallway, so she went into his room. It was about a year and a half or so. He look at the closet and go, man, 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 you know, man, man. She said, man, no man. You open the closet. So again, she went back to sit down. She put him down like this, and he was laughing and carrying on, right? So she was laughing at So he came into his room, points to the closet, and he says, man, man. He's like, you know. So my sister opens the closet, and out comes this medieval-looking guy and smelling. It must have been a pub or a whorehouse or something where they were, right? And out comes this guy. And of course, Daryl's laughing and carrying on. He's making faces for him, right? And he's walking in front of her. And he walks right into the wall. And he walks right into the wall. Walks right into the wall. Like that. Like that. She told me the story. England's crawling with these things, right? She then says she's transported into this place that used to obviously be a pub. This is what she surmised. The place that she was in, she opens her eyes and there's this activity. These people are drinking grog and they're eating and it was maybe the 16th, 15th century or whatever. She notices the clothes and she's frozen. Now she's fearing that she's going to get stuck there. So she's praying to get out of there, out of there. And she can see and see the people and smell everything that's going on. It was sort of teleporting, the teleporting. She didn't know how long she was in that state, she says. And then eventually she opened her eyes and it was she was in her own apartment again. That had never happened to her. She died young. This caused a lot of stress. She didn't like it at all. It was very, very scary for her. And saw a lot of stuff in England, you know, whenever they went to a place to uh, sightseeing castles and stuff. She saw all these just spirits. It wasn't funny for her. Some of them followed her her home and saw them at night. It was very tough for her. She didn't bottle up like I did. She was wide open. My brother-in-law was coming back one night. He never believed my sister Julie. Julie also saw things, but she never brought it up. One night he was coming back from the East End, and there was a, next to the Davis Mountain Air Force Base, there's a road that just goes east. And he was driving along the road, and there was what looked like an Indian of that time, maybe the 1870s, 1880s. We'd go along this road in those days, it was real dark. And all of a sudden, another half mile up the road, there was the same Indian. And then he kept driving, and he looked in the flatbed of his truck, and he was sitting in the flatbed of his truck. Stopped the truck, got out, you know, <laughs> lit a cigarette. <laughs> Indian was sitting there in the truck. He says, I heard all kinds of stuff in the bushes. He said, I think there were maybe a tribe that were massacred. Tucson has had a lot of blood. The conquistadors were in that area. They set up all these churches, not before they slayed a few Indians, right? Indian burial grounds pop up again and again in ghost stories. In an upcoming episode, we'll hear a story about one much closer to home at Rice Lake in the Hiawatha First Nation burial mound. But for now, back to Bernard's stories. In 1984, I moved from my salon from Queen Street where I was doing all this punk work and stuff with John Steinberg and the Rainbow Room and all this other stuff. I went to work with my buddy for about a year who was at Charleston Young. 
My buddy Lewis he says, I, I brought a person in who is a psychic. She also works for the RCMP. Her name is Nell, and she's going to teach us how to read clients by giving us techniques to really see their auras. Everybody has an aura, you know. She did this little class with about six of us, and then at the end of the class, she came up to me and she said, you know, you're uh, kind of bottled up, corked up. Like, I can see the cork. I said, what do you mean? Well, you have two things going on. What, what you were in your past life, I can tell you that. I said, really? She said, you were imprisoned in Venice in about the 16th century. You were part of a cult to get rid of a pope, a very corrupt pope. Somebody fingered you, and they put you in this courtyard in a box, and it had a little hole in the corner that I can see you doing this. I can see you doing this. You would be up on your toes trying to get as much light into this little hole. And then they would take you out once a day and you do your business in the courtyard. And then they bring you back. So you were always in the dark. And that's why you're scared of the dark. No one ever has known that I want her to go to Venice. No one knew that this thing about Venice. I thought it was just a trivial thing. But you were in there for about 10 years, she says. And then they put you in there when you were 13. When you were 13, she said. And then you were let out. At the end of 10 years, you were barely alive. You went back to your village, and they threw you back in jail, and that's where you died. You died in that little box. You have more purple in your aura, she says, but I can see that you're chicken. I can see your life. I can see your life. She was really quite powerful, and she always laughed and carried on, right? She was always saying this with a smile. The most sinister thing she'd say, right? You know, I have to clean house tonight. I said, oh, you clean houses? You know what I mean. Clean house, they got to get rid of stuff. Ghosts, goblins, and demons, she says. I walk in, and they're really stupid, you know that. A lot of ghosts are just stupid. I'd like you to come out with you one night. I said, no way. And she laughed. She said, I know that. You have a, a, a cork right where your arm is. Go back when you were a child. You were climbing a roof. She said, if you climb that roof and open the umbrella and see if you could fly down with the umbrella, you'd have broken your neck. So why didn't I go up there? She says, did you hear a voice? A voice told you to go down. So you threw the umbrella down and you went down the ladder. I said, yeah, I kind of remember that. September of 1984, nine, ten months later, I'm doing a perm. And I could always feel her presence behind me. So I'm doing a perm, and then she says, you know what? Sticks this picture right in front of me. It's a blonde girl. And I go, pull it back. I said, what? what's this for? She says, tell me. I said, tell you what? This girl, tell me something. I said, I don't know. She murdered? She murdered? She murdered? That's, that's what came into my head. In Peace River, RCMP had called me. I got to find the rock. She's buried under a rock. But if you came with me, I said, I'm married. <laughs> said, I know. And she laughs. Boyfriend murdered her. Probably a breakup. Didn't like it. Sliced her up. She stuck that in front of me. I just automatically said, I don't know. She murdered. I don't know why I said that. I wasn't thinking that. I was doing a perm. But she helped me produce a show. She was a producer in Calgary, by the way. She was top flight, you know, at that time. She says, you know what, we're going to go to Ramson Park over here. It's my favorite park, which is where the salon is today. She sat down and she said, okay, I'm going to give you a tape. 
and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future to you. You're going to get out of hair. I said, no, no, I do hair shows, you know. And you're going to have a better life with Gail, she said, because you're going to go into therapy, because you need to, because you're working all the time. Your kids don't know you. And you're going to stop working at home. It's for losers. She says, I see a green room. I didn't know where I live. Then I see another green room, and you're going to be in this green room in your house. It looks like a basement. And in fact, the first time that I went in that basement, yes, it was green. And then about five years later, I put green grass cloth on it. So she actually saw two different colors of green. That's how specific she was. Hmm. I see green, then I see another green room, she said. Anyway, and so she did a whole tape. She said, we're never going to see each other again. But you know, all you have to do, if you've got a problem, think of me and ask me something at one o'clock in the morning. She's a late nighter. Just think of me and ask me a question, she says, and I'll try to get the answer to you. I never, ever saw her again. My brother would see her on the streets, you know, and she, she knew my brother because he came to the salon once and she predicted his demise with his wife. Free will. Do we really have the free will or is everything already mapped out for us? I'm not sure. Not sure about that because it's been bothering me since 1984. There are many times that I wanted to actually find her and call her because she didn't have a phone because she'd be bothered all the time. She was a good psychic. The part about me getting out of hair, when I went into marriage counseling, when I started to work less because I was always working seven days a week, the marriage counselor, after we found out about our history, said to me, I have a prescription for you, Bernard. You're going to work at home? This is like six months after Nella told me this. I want you to get up in the morning, he said. I want you to make your kids breakfast, and I want you to walk them to school. Then I want you to do your clients, go back, pick them up at lunch, make them lunch, and walk them back to school. Then I want you to go to the school and pick them up after school. Is there anything like coaching you could do there? started coaching the fourth grade baseball, and we went A to no hanging out at home more. That was the beginning of 26 years at home. In those days, anybody who worked at home, home, well, you were a loser. You couldn't have enough clients to really keep it going, right? So I said, you know, it's really, uh, he said, I know, I know. You think you're a star, right? The only star you are is for your kids. You're not a star. You're just a guy who has a family. So your kids should look at you as a star. He says, so you're making money. So what? It's really what you want is your family. Having just recently celebrated Father's Day, I think that's a great note to end this episode on. And you know, superstar or not, Bernard does look an awful lot like Jeff Goldblum. This is the part of the show where I'll first tell you how grateful I am for you listening to this episode and to the first episodes of the show. I'm learning as I go, and I hope getting better. If you want to help contribute to the making of the show, you can pledge a dollar or more towards the production if you go to patreon.com slash supernatural stories. That's Patreon, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash supernatural stories. My main costs in making this show are paying for online sponsored posts and for printing up poster ads that I put up around Toronto. I have to pay for the sponsored posts in order to reach people across Canada 
who have had these supernatural experiences and are waiting for someone to tell their story to and have it heard seriously by an audience. I also have to make the poster ads for the same reason. On top of these costs, there's the hosting for the show itself. I'm trying to run a very tight ship and make sure that people are really happy with the format of the show and the content I'm bringing before I spend any more money that I don't have to promote it. Any funds will immediately result in an increase in how many people hear about the show, with the main goal being to find more and more stories to keep bringing them to you. Friends of your mom only goes so far. Thank you for listening to this special two-part episode of Supernatural Stories, and thanks for telling your friends about the show and supporting a place for the supernatural in Canada. I'm your host, Cal Goodbaum. The music featured in this show was by Blue Dot Sessions with Arizona Moon, Utopia, Ohio with Paradise, Arizona, Snake Oil Salesman with Arizona, The Fucked Up Beat with Mothman Found Alive in Arizona Desert, U.S. Army Blues with Walk That Dog, and Epsilon Knot with Arizona. The rest were tracks I composed. I'm a musician after all. If you have a story of your own to contribute, you can do that at supernaturalstories.ca. Till next time.